Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. Welcome to Take Fountain. My guest today is writer Chris Peeler and uh, Katz Nacho and Harry, who are going to be a part of this. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for coming over and having the cats as part of the process. No, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I, um, I've, I've known you for five years, both on the stand-up circuit and also as a writer, but over the last couple of years I've got to see up close and personal some of your work. Uh, Sink or Swim was this year in the Hollywood Fringe Festival and, um, and then the... Oh, gosh, now the, it's escaping me. The horse one. Oh, the, Horse with a View. Horse with a View, that's right. So let's go right back. Where are you from? I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And how long have you been in L.A.? I came to L.A. in 2001. Um, At the time, I was a writer. I still am. uh, And I was dating an actress, and we were living in New York. And we said, hey, let's move out to L.A. And found out that we were not the only ones who had that idea. It's a funny place for that, isn't it? What proportion of LA do you think are people who aren't born here? Almost all, yeah. I would say. There are very few. I know, I'm thinking through the people who I've met, and I think there are two who I have met who are, who are uh, native Angelinos. Um, and when you say to somebody, where are you from? And they say, I actually was born in the valley. And it's like, <laughs> they're so proud of it because they know how unique they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was uh, visiting in New York, um, I was staying with a New Yorker, a friend of a friend, as you do, crashing on her living room floor. And she said, the thing you have to realize about Manhattan, Ella, is that it's only got people here who have made it, who are on their way to making it, or who support those who are doing both. And if you come and you can't make it, you have to get off Manhattan. And I notice in LA that people come for plan A and then frequently have plan B. Not that that's a lesser thing, but it's like a self-discovery thing. Have you found something like that? Absolutely, and I think I'm, I'm one of those people. When I, when I moved here, I had the same idea that a lot of people have. You know, I'm gonna come out here. I had studied playwriting uh, this was at a time when you know people were starting to realize that playwriting is valuable training for other types of writing, and 
I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write some screenplays. I came out here. Actually, I had an agent at the time um, through a friend. And I figured I'll, I'll write some screenplays. I will get work that way. And I will be on my way. And I'll have the, the little craftsman bungalow in Studio City. And it'll be all great. Um, and I did write the screenplays. Um, and they got shopped around and I got some nice comments, but it started a trend that has continued to this day, which is almost everything that I ever write. Someone who reads it or sees it will tell me that it would be better in a different form. So every screenplay I've ever written, someone has said, maybe you should think about making this a play or a novel or something else. And, you know, I get the same thing with when I have done these solo shows, a couple of which you've seen. Yes. People come up to me and say, have you ever thought about making that into a book? And I think it's nice because it's not them saying that it's bad, but it's a little frustrating for me because I have made the effort to make that thing in that form because I think that's the form it should take. Um, so... That, I think, had something to do with why I didn't become, you know, a famous script doctor and screenplay author is that the things that I wrote, according to the people who are the ones who control whether stuff get made, were not necessarily suited to the form. Um, and so I looked at, I had, to, when I first moved out here, I had saved money and actually had the classic thing that happens in movies. Um, I had had a, a small inheritance from a great aunt. Um, and small, I mean, I mean small. Enough that, that I could live for, I think it was maybe 18 months or something without a job out here. And so I, I wrote, I, I went down to the coffee shop every day. I wrote, I wrote the screenplay. Um, it was called Lightning Rod. It was about a guy who... Um, has some sort of bizarre hormonal imbalance where um, every time he feels the emotion of love, he gets struck by lightning, um, which I thought was a great idea. That's a great idea. Um, and maybe someone out there will take it and run with it and do a better job writing a screenplay well, about it than I did. maybe you need to resubmit it. Um, I mean, times have changed. <laughs> because there is a resilience thing here, isn't there, that there's only so much getting up and starting all over again you can do. Um, I think I'm... I, I didn't count initially, but based on what I've done in the last two years that I have been counting, I'm 600 auditions for wow. two bookings. Wow. Now, I would have been embarrassed about that five years ago when I first arrived, but now I know that it's not about the booking. Right. It's about so much other stuff. Um, and I find, I, I find that personally um, interesting and satisfying. Well, do you, do you enjoy the process of auditioning? Oh, yeah. I love it. But I never used to, um, and this isn't about me, but I just started this class where uh, Jamie Rudofsky, who's this casting director, works with Risa Bramon-Garcia, and I've done classes with both of them. And they really upped my game, particularly I had this force field thing that happened when I walked into the room. So... I mean, you, you are around a lot of actors, so you know how this works. So you get, you get your material, you start, um, you read it, you read it, you read it, you read it, all the lines on the page, so you know what's the story, who are the characters, what are they trying to achieve. Then you finally get to the stage of learning your lines, and then you work out 
um, who you're talking to and, and, uh, and it's embedded in all of these, these various processes. I don't want to demystify it for the unknowing. <laughs> and, and of course, then you, instead of going into a room where you're with an actor, you're with a reader and a camera and a camera operator and maybe up to a dozen producers, directors and so on when you get a call back. So it's a very unnatural situation. Um, although on set, frequently I'm actually delivering my lines to a producer holding up a can of Coke. So it's not like, it's not like theatre acting where you're always acting with another person. Anyway, so what would happen, I would do all my preparation. I'd even have coaching for some of the bigger roles. Um, and then I would walk into the casting room like moving across a vortex where all sensibility was lost. And I became like a deer in the headlights. And, there, and it seemed like I had rehearsed everything in such a way that if there was any variation from that, it completely threw me. And it was all part of a nerves process. Anyway, so Jamie teaches me, wipe your feet at the door. Oh, that's great. It is amazing. So, you, so you've done all your preparation. You know, they say, do your preparation, then leave it. Right. That's really an interesting statement, but how you do that is like, whoa. So what this means is you get to the stage in your house or with your coach where you say, okay, I got this. So you accept that, I got this. And then you arrive at casting where you've had to, like yesterday, I was 30 minutes early, I get there, street sweeping on one side of the road, can't park there, other side of the road, temporary tow-away zone, can't park there. And by the way, I feel like you could do a whole other podcast about parking for actors in Los Angeles. Right, absolutely. Well, there are significant websites <laughs> to it. But you know, so I'm, I'm getting further and further and further and further away from the casting office. It's 92 degrees, which is <clears throat> like 36. Um, I'm dressed for an audition. I don't want to get hot and sweaty walking 20 minutes to an audition, right? So, of course, that's what I have to do. I illegally park somewhere. Um, I'm in LA, so I put white light across my car to protect it from being, from being <laughs> ticketed. And then I walk 20 minutes and I get to the, the audition and discover that there are two extra scenes that weren't sent to me. Oh, um, so I'm learning that. So of course, then I've got all of this. I'm hot, I'm sweaty, I've got hair, hat, um, hat hair, um, and I'm nervous and I'm all of this. And so I walked out again and I wiped my feet and I walked in and it was the best audition I've done. I'll probably not get booked, but, 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 <laughs> but, you, had, that's the way. but you had that experience. And I think yeah. that's a lot of the thing that, that I have come to realize having been here for a while and done various thing, various creative endeavors is you have to enjoy the process because odds are that's all you're going to get. And so for an actor, you know, I know plenty of actors who say, oh God, I hate auditioning. I hate auditioning. Well, for most actors, that's most of what they're doing. Yeah. So if you hate that, maybe you need to look at doing something else. Yeah. And when, you know, to, when I, Lost, you know, my agent had a had a very polite breakup dinner with me um, after the first. Oh, I hate those. When they're that polite, you're not quite sure what's happened. <laughs> oh, she was very sweet and very nice, and um, so nice that I thought she was was wanting to like, because we were not officially signed. And I thought, oh, she's going to sign me, and this is the big step upward, and it was more like the big step downward. <sighs> but after that, you know, you get frustrated and. What I decided was I want to be doing 
doing the things that I want to do on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I mean, in order to do that, I do have another job that I do during the day that makes me money, um, which to my 21-year-old self would be a huge disappointment. But to my 46-year-old self, it's the way that I can do the things that I want to do. And what I figured through writing plays, and I did, I mean, I did actually write for TV very briefly um, for a great animated show called Rick and Steve, The Happiest Gay Couple in All the World. Oh, my gosh. Um, which was uh, created by this guy, Alan Broca, which was, a, it had a, I, I love the, uh, the birth story of that show because he made um, stop motion animation videos using Lego when he was in grad school. And it was using those in the little Lego figures. Yes. Um, and it was set in kind of a fictionalized version of West Hollywood. So a all gay town. Um, and it was this kind of funny, sort of South Parky, sort of scatological humor. Um, one of the episode, the first episode that I worked on that was also he had done as a short involved, you know, a, an unfortunate spillage of semen. Um, traveling from one place to another. And so he made these shorts and I believe got um, a cease and desist from Lego um, because he was using their figures. Um, And then the show got into production and the question was, how are we going to do the stop motion animation? Um, And what we ended up with was we ended up working with the same people who do the characters for Bob the Builder. So I thought it was a, a funny little irony that this kind of smutty show was using, if you look, and if you look at Rick and Steve, you can see the DNA of Bob the Builder yeah. in there. Um, but that was, a, that was a really fascinating experience working on a show um, on a very, you know, small budget. I think we made six or, six or eight episodes each season, and um, most of the... the most of the writing happened either in a borrowed office or in Alan's house somewhere and, and working really intensively on what would turn out to be, you know, 22 minute episodes of stop motion animation, but, you know, doing the process of writing, writing 25 jokes for the same line or doing the, and on at the same time, cause it's a small, you know, I think there were three of us on the staff at the largest, um, looking, you know, laying out a look, helping with, uh, larger arcs and, you know, writing, writing first drafts of episodes and learning also that part of that process is you can write, everything you write is going to get rewritten yeah. and being, being aware of that and, and having the mentality that basically your job is you're, you're a comedy faucet. That's how I thought of myself. I come, I come to work, I turn on the faucet, I give whatever I have to whatever that situation is, whether it's coming up with, an, with a plot idea or, you know, seven puns, mm. um, and then you turn it off. And, but in the same way that you audition without necessarily getting the jobs, you have to like that process. Well, and that's... So one of the things that strikes me um, is that... At the, at the birth of our careers, at the seed, when we're thinking this is what we want to do, what we have this vision of or this dream of is that there will be this one great script that we right. write or this one great performance and everything is building towards that. 
And then over time, that changes to understanding that it's just all about the work. But as you said, if you can't grasp that, you've got to do something else. And a, it's a J.K. Rowling who said, a writer writes. Or yes. as every, every writer has maybe said that. I, I think other people... <laughs> it's also in some movie that Billy Crystal was in. Um, uh, what was the one where they trade... Where they, I think, throw Mama from the train, possibly. Oh, really? I think because he's a writing teacher in that. Yep. Um, but yes, and that and that's right. And it's it's about finding finding the thing that gives you some satisfaction. Um, I mean, there's always going to be some degree of discomfort um, if you're doing creative work, whether it's whether it's the writing process or the performing process or you know stage fright for stand-ups or or you know mm. theater actors. I, I you know certainly experienced that myself and seen it in others, but it's finding finding the thing that that sustains you and being and having that be enough and it would be great you know at this stage and i absolutely had that feeling like i'm going to write the screenplay and this is going to launch everything and there will be a linear progression um and that's the other thing that i've seen with lots of friends is there's not a linear progression. And I guess with myself too, you know, if you get one TV job, that doesn't necessarily mean you're ever going to get another TV job. You know, there's still a lot of the factors that go into getting the first job still matter when it's getting the second job and it's, yeah. and it's luck and it's personalities and it's what your identity is. And it's, you know, cause you're only as good as your last job. Yeah, I mean, and it's and you're only as good as some specific person thinks your last job was. Well, yeah, absolutely. And that, so what I'm finding now is that, and Facebook is killing me for this, <laughs> is that I look around at people in my my age group, people that I went to school with, and they've all had what I see externally as a linear progression. They've gone to university, they've studied to be lawyers, they've joined a firm, they've become partner, um, they've moved from student accommodation into a rented apartment to a bought apartment to a bought house to several investment properties and now they're barging on the Rhine or they're, <laughs> you know, they're strolling Corfu and their lives are writ large on Facebook as to me the end or a, a certain point of that linear progression that we see that has not been our journey, you know? Yeah, and I think that's an easy, that's a, a very easy trap to fall into. And I think the, it's hard to, and yeah, I think in an ideal world, I probably would not be on social media as much as I am, um, but if you go and talk to those people, you would probably find that the progression is not quite as linear as, as it appears. Yeah. But it is also the case that there is, I, I think that this, the second step that I do when I get that feeling is go, okay, um, would you, would you want to be a lawyer? No. And, and, yeah. <laughs> Would I want to go somewhere yeah. the same place every day? Yeah. And, no. And so there's that, you know, I think there's that trade-off. Um, and this, this is another very Hollywood very, thing yeah, happening. Very Hollywood. It's yes. The, uh, yeah. We, but, 
we always we always know when when someone famous has died because we hear the choppers going over Hollywood Boulevard. Is that what they do? Absolutely, yeah. Because people will gather for uh, like little memorials around oh, the stars. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. when we hear choppers, you know, we don't think war. Right. We think, oh, uh, I think this you know. is a pursuit. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Oh, we get that. That's we've a double got, whammy of Los Angeles. The, yeah. Blues and twos and the chopper. So yeah. there you go. So we've resolved yeah. that one. Well, and that's another very. That's a very, very clear sign of having lived in LA for a while. Is I find the helicopters overhead kind of soothing mm. because I know that that's law enforcement doing their work. And also the sound. For some reason, I've gotten very used to the sound. You know, when we get visitors here, the helicopters go, and they're like, oh, my God, what's happening? And I know. I, when like, I first arrived, you just reminded me. I used to stick my head out of the window yeah. and go, oh, what's going on? You know, yeah. and you see them with the, the big flashlights. Oh, and, yeah. And you think, oh, goodness me, I'd better lock all the doors and windows. <laughs> and now I'm just like, oh, turn the television yeah, up higher. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. That notion of the resilience of the artist, have you... Has there been a a specific mentor, either face to face or or in a book, that you have found that was helpful to you, or did you just have those skills from your parents that allowed you to grow and and learn that? I've had an interesting experience with mentors in that I've had a few, but not anything really long term. Um, when I first moved to New York. I had a playwriting teacher named Chris Sarasso, who I still remember, obviously, um, who was very supportive, and that was really important to get to get me into the idea that you could be a playwright, uh, because I didn't have that idea. I came from a more academic background. I have, a, you know, I have an English degree, the kind of English degree where we read English literature, no American literature, no literature of other countries. It was English. That's what it was. Um, and so meeting Chris and taking, I took this class at Playwrights Horizons in New York, and he kind of got me kickstarted into the idea of being a playwright. Um, but then I went to I went to graduate school, and you know one of the things you really hope for in going to a graduate program is finding a mentor, um, and it was kind of rocky there. Our um, our main professor was a guy named Romulus Linney. Um, who is name. yes? Who's he's the father of Laura Linney, the actress. Okay. Um, and he has since passed away. And he had a very military approach uh, to teaching, which was the kind of break them down and build them back up method. And, I'm not a fan of that. I must admit. Um, it. I'm sure that it works for some people. Right. Yeah. Um, it was not the best for me, and it took me. A couple of years actually to kind of recover from from grad school, and I think that's a common experience too. You know, you have these teachers who are artists, and so of course they have strong points of view, and that point of view kind of takes you over. Yes. Um, so that was that was a tough thing in terms of having a mentor, and it was also true that he um, left the program during my last year. So when we were writing our thesis plays. Um, we were sort of in uh, no man's land because we didn't have him who had been with us for two years and the new head didn't really know us. So we kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. Um, so after, I mean, I think that one of the better takeaways that I took from that is don't count on a mentor. <laughs> you know, look for people who can help you, look for people who can um, speak from experience, but 
um, since since I kind of recovered from grad school in my kind of late twenties, um, it's been more about what I want to do, um, and that does make it it does make it more time consuming because. I you know I wrote I wrote it took I don't know probably a year to write that first screenplay when I lived out here, and then that didn't go anywhere. And then you have the recovery time of dealing with the fact that it didn't go anywhere. And that's to me that's really one of the one of the things that I would love to improve is like whether something is a success or a failure, as soon as it reaches the stage that it's going to reach, reach, get on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm currently right now kind of in a that fallow period. You know, I just did my show which had its last performance two weeks ago and there's always a part of me that says you know if you're if you're a real writer you should be writing five pages a day right now um but then there's that other side of me that wants a little time off don't you think that is that is really important i was it's funny the little things that you remember i'm always amazed at the things that I remember from childhood where I'll suddenly have flashes of learning to ride a bike and I don't see the full movie. I don't even see a 30-second commercial of it. It's just a, like a, <clears throat> a flash photo in my mind, right? And I think one of the things that I was always taught was you've got to know when to paddle the canoe and when to bring your oar up and rest. And and sometimes that's that's really hard. Like Mondays, I hate. If I don't have work or an audition booked on a Monday, I can get into this headspace that is really quite sad, you know, and, and um, quite anxious. And so I've built things into my life around that. And one of them is laundry is Mondays, so I, I feel like I've achieved something. And then I have maybe a list of three things that I have to do that are like technically kind of office-y life stuff. And then if I've got nothing else, that is my day off. It's not a day for socialising, it's not a day for working, it's a day for reading a book or going for a walk or whatever I want to do. And I had to create that space because that that drive that you're talking about, a writer always writes five pages a day, part of a, a work ethic, if you like, that if we're not doing that and we're not successful, then what are we, creates a space where you can't be creative. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I think it's getting past the, in my case, part of it is getting past my inner F. Scott Fitzgerald, who has a, one of his quotes is, the biggest difference between it's something, oh, now I can't remember the quote, but it's, it's about basically you're not an artist unless you're getting paid for it right. is the gist of it. And that's not true. And it is, there was also a period that I went through when I was out here where I said, I am not going to write anything unless I'm getting paid for it. Um, which. Haha <laughs> emoji. Which, yeah, <laughs> which made, which made some sense at the time, yeah. you know, because I had gone through, I had had a number of. Plays produced, um, most of them non-paid, um, and so how do you make how do you make that leap? Um, and so at, at the time, I said I'm going to make that leap by making this declaration, and um, I got a couple of paid things, but then not really anything. And so then you make the decision: Are you going to hold to that principle, or are you going to try to find other ways to do 
to do the things that you want to do. Mm. And, and so that kind of brings, brought me to these uh, solo shows that I've done. And just to be clear to anyone who is considering doing a solo show, you will lose money um, unless you are extraordinarily lucky. Um, and it's, it is not a way to uh, line your pocketbook in any way, shape, or form. But for me, it is the most overall satisfying experience I've ever had mm. um, in terms of the writing process, in terms of the rehearsal process, which I just love, and in terms of performance. And it's, you know, having done stand-up, you, you know that there's, you know, stand-up is fun. And it's, it's great to make people laugh. And that's gratifying. But there's a different kind of connection you can have when you're freed from, I don't want to say tyranny because that's kind of dramatic, but no, it's the, but, but freed from the tyranny of the punchline. Let's yeah, call, let's coin that phrase. I was just about to say, let's the tyranny of the joke, yeah. when, because what you do in your work is really, um, and using a very theatrical term here, you know, you subvert their expectations and you also, you take them on a journey. And, uh, and I know having been in your shows, the tears and the laughter that come through both of those. Let's talk about that work because both of these shows were autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Do you find it easier or just different to write about yourself as opposed to say writing Lightning Rod, which was about somebody who's hormonally disturbed? Um, well, that certainly felt like a secret autobiograph, auto, felt like a secret autobiography in a way. You know, I think everything has some aspect of it, but it is, it is a, I don't know about easier. Yeah, actually, no, it is easier um, because it is a, it is a process of gathering memories and translating memories which is a process that I enjoy and which is a process that is different than conjuring something from the ether. And the interesting thing to me is that process of translation, because as somebody who has done these shows, I've also seen a lot of solo shows. And certainly when I did the first one, you could hear people wincing over the internet when I invited them, because the, the shows have a, a solo show has such potential to be self-indulgent, to be, you know, flat out boring, because when you're talking about yourself and writing about yourself, things have meaning to you that don't necessarily have meaning to other people. Mm. Um, you know, if I say the word firefly, for example, um, that might mean to most people in the world, it's a little bug that lights up. It would happen to be the name of my first cat who I got for Christmas when I was eight, and who's, one of whose first acts upon arriving under the tree was to poop under the Christmas tree. So it has this whole series of associations. And the job of the person performing a solo show is to transform, is to, sorry, is to translate the feeling that you get from the word firefly into stories that people who don't know your background will get that same feeling. Right. And that's been the, that's been the real challenge, and and it's figuring out how to 
how to bring people along on the voyage with you, how to not be um, self-indulgent, yeah. how to not um, wallow in things. And that's a, you know, that's a fine line. I think both on a writing side and on a performance side is, you know, this, this last show was, a, was a dealt a lot with my father dying. Yeah. And I was really conscious of not wanting it to be, oh, I'm sad because my dad died. And I wasn't there, and you know we had an imperfect relationship in the same way that everybody has imperfect relationships with their parents. That has to be there, but it has to be balanced with, with in my case, you know, hopefully some things that are funny, and also things that other people can identify with. So it's not so you're not kind of going down the rabbit hole of your own life. You're going halfway into the rabbit tunnel of your life such that people can go with you. Well, it's the resonance that makes it special, isn't it, really? Creating a resonance for other people to bounce, yeah. bounce around in. And, the, and the, you know, the writing about yourself is you have details that you can draw from um, as opposed to details that you have to make up. So it is a, it is a different process. And certainly for me as a performer, it's a, it's a different process because you know, I, I'm a writer... Not a, I would never call myself an actor, um, but I am someone who can perform things that I've written. And you, and so when you, so from from the typewriter to the stage, you then employ a director. Yes. To work with you, what's that process like? Seeing them respond to your heart that you've laid out on the page. It is inevitably difficult at. A few phases of the process. Um, in this last process, I worked with a director named John McCright, who was fantastic. Um, he had set up his garage as a small theater space. He's got a black curtain. He's got theatrical lights. He's got cubes. So we rehearsed in his garage up in North Hollywood, which was fantastic. And he was great um, because he was blunt. And he would say to me after a rehearsal, you know, in this area, I was bored. And that is that is not meant to be destructive criticism. It's meant to be clear, and that's what that's what you want. And is the onus then on you to unbore, or does he offer input to shift things around? Or um, a little work? bit of a little bit of both. You know, okay. he would offer he would offer specific um, suggestions on things, but ultimately I had the final word. And a lot of it in in this case, and a lot of it I think with most of the playwriting I've done is, is really about cutting. You know, I... Cutting, 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 cutting. Yes. Monty Python. Sorry. You know, you start, <laughs> you start with a script that's going to be 20 to 30% longer than the final product. Yeah. Um, and you, you snip away everything that isn't essential. And that was a great thing that I learned from Romulus Linney. I will uh, absolutely give him credit because his mantra for us was stick to the point and cut when you can. And he may have stolen that from Thornton Wilder, and he may have attributed that to Thornton Wilder, but I remember him saying that. So I'm going to give him credit for that in this instance. Well, what do um, they say? There are no original thoughts. There are only original ways of expressing them. Yeah. Right. So, so that process with, with John and with, um, with other directors I've worked with is, um, it is kind of odd because it's two people in the room for the most of the time. And you're saying things that are pretty, you know, quite personal and quite, you know, making yourself quite vulnerable. And 
I have been extraordinarily lucky in um, in the people that I've worked with. The, my previous two shows, I worked with a guy named Tom O'Leary, um, who teaches he teaches AMD out here, but his uh, other life was actually as an actor, which was a good balance for me because I tend to want to ferret out the little comedy bits, and he really focused on the acting moments. I mean, that's sort of a generic way to say it, but you know, the, the emotional connection moments. Creating that, taking it from you out into the audience yeah. so that they're yeah. responding to it. Yeah. And also balancing your reaction to something as a person to what you need to do as an actor. You know, in the first show that I did, there was a, there was a moment where I was uh, a 10-year-old kid watching a horse die. And I'm still getting a little choked up even just thinking about it now. And that's because that's my memory as a person. But the degree of reaction that I have to that moment on stage is not actually evocative of what we want at that moment in the story. So that's the, that's the, the, the balance of having the details that you can use from your own life if you're writing about yourself. The balance is you have to distinguish between your own emotions as a person relating to that memory and your conveying those emotions to the audience. And it, again, it goes back to that idea of translating yeah. and, and finding a way to have a connection to the audience and have them come along with you. And I think that's one of the flaws that I have seen in, in some solo shows is that it's a performance and not a connection. And really, if you connect with the audience, almost anything you do on stage is is stronger and you know this was a mantra that that uh, that John had said to me you know if you're if you're in it and and the audience is with you anything that goes wrong is something that has gone right yes. because you can react to it in the moment and they see you reacting to it in the moment and i had a great example of that in the very last performance of, of the last show um, there's a moment where i am talking about baking and I'm putting uh, some stuff into a, a piping uh, thing to, to pipe. And something happened with the, the piping mechanism. And so I'm sitting there squeezing and nothing's coming out. And so the line was, uh, you know, it was, it was great to chat with people who knew me only for my piping skills. And I was doing this and it wasn't working. <laughs> and I said, which oh, apparently no. are non-existent. <laughs> and it got a nice laugh because yes. that was a thing happening in that room with me and those people. And that is so much of what I am always chasing in anything that I'm writing and performing is finding that moment of connection in the room. And that's what this kind of storytelling genre is great for. You don't have all of the machinery of a big, certainly not the machinery of a, of a film or a TV shoot, but you don't even have the machinery of a big play where you have sets and people pretending to be dukes and duchesses and you know this whole sus suspension of disbelief it's it's me chris and these people in this room and we're going to share this story in this room and it may be we may be sweaty because it's too hot we may be freezing cold there may be all sorts of things going on but it's that actual exchange happening in the room mm. this is take fountain with ella james I want to talk about your baking. <laughs> okay. Because I've never been to a performance where the writer and performer bakes 
for the audience and hands out. We had macaroons, this macarons. Macaron, yes. Macaron. Um, hey, macaron. No, don't dance. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great thing on the internet that is uh, differentiating. It's macaroon, macaron, and then macron, the, the oh, premiere of the. Yeah. Uh, and macaroni and the whole thing. But anyway, yes. Okay, that's great. So tell me about your baking. Um, I think it's part of the same impulse, which is to share something with strangers that I have made for them. And um, Do you only do cakes or do you like cooking generally? As I've gotten older, I have cooked less and baked more. Okay. And it... Because I have to say, audience, he's... he's Stuff is exquisite, <laughs> like to a professional level. What did you make the other day? It was a it was a pizza with oh dessert pizza. This dessert is this pizza. is my what new obsession. Yeah, and it was it was really good. So it's a yeah it's a crust from a from a tart as the as the base, and then strawberry mint puree as the sauce, and then I made homemade white chocolate that had ginger and orange essence in it to you know kind of shave on the top as the as the cheese and that that will definitely be my new ongoing project is variations on dessert pizza because there's so many different things you can do with it you know you different fruit fruit purees different types of white chocolate and white chocolate is this great vessel for different flavors yeah you can put and i'm a big fan of citrus flavors so that orange flavor you can do lemon you can do uh you can do mint actually at the last show I, that the middle of the cookies was white chocolate and mint basically mm. and for me, baking is something that I it hits all of the marks. I enjoy the the planning process of it. I enjoy the experimentation process of it. I also, on the flip side of that, I enjoy that if you hit on a recipe that's good and you repeat it correctly, you will get something good. Mm. There will be a positive outcome, and I think that connects with all of the stuff that we've been talking about for artistic people who are depending on the judgment of other people for some aspect of their success to have something where if you follow the recipe you get something sweet which is a little quote from my show um <laughs> to quote myself I love um, but to have that is is wonderful to know that there will be a good outcome and to share that with other people too i think is is a real pleasure or as the psychologist would say when everything is turning to shit be in control of one thing in your life exactly <laughs> exactly um i started painting um as part of reese's class that i was talking about earlier uh, her whole school is about not only the acting but also um meditation and mindfulness having your mind mm -hmm. looked after the physical body whether it's by uh, qigong or gym or whatever is your passion um volunteering so i now do this sibling support group at the children's hospital and we go and entertain the kids for an hour a month which is great fun um but also art mm -hmm. and i was always told oh we're not artists in our family we don't do that so there was no craft going on there was no now how much do you think that was your family and how much do you think this is australia because one well, of the things that, yeah. audience, just for your information, I am married to an Australian, and one of the things that she says is that this, the educational system in Australia is set up such that smart people go into sciences and medicine. Yes. And the concept that a smart person would choose a path that leads them to be an artist is not really on the docket. So I would say, 
Australia, because it doesn't have a, a large enough audience, relies on a tremendous amount of government support in art. And more people attend art events, uh, the Archibald at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, for example, which is an internationally famous competition. Um, we have um, Sydney Symphony Orchestra, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra, Queensland Symphony Orchestra. We have orchestras, we have ballet companies, we have um, a film industry that is too small, which is why everybody comes over here. Uh, we have writers, we have painters and sculptors, we had Brett Whiteley, we had um, uh, um, Margaret Ollie. I mean, I'm just throwing words out here. One of my favourite novelists, Nick Earls, is an Australian. Right. Um, is he a native Australian, though? I don't know. But he writes about he writes very, about, very well about Australia, right. yeah. Um, so there is significant art. However, we have a very limited media. And so our media pumps out the stories that they think Australians want. And so we're led to believe, when you, when you look at the structure of an Australian news bulletin, which was my home, that's because I was a newsreader, journalist, then a talkback host, what you've got is three and a half minutes of news and then a minute of sport. Now, right. that never made sense to me. If you want sporting results, go to a sporting station or like why would it why would it take up that much space? There's our, there's your next million dollar idea, Australian ESPN. <laughs> well, I've kind of tried it. <laughs> anyway, but the reality is more Australians attend art and cultural events than they do sporting events. The figures are in from the Bureau of Statistics, but there is more media attention given to sport. Saturday afternoon, you're going to be watching football or cricket on television. There are some art shows on our public broadcast of the ABC. But it's a matter of we shape our society by the media that we deliver to them and the assumptions that we make about them. And so I also think that in the 70s, when children were being raised, we were still post-war, 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. Well, certainly your, your parents had seen that. They had seen that. So there was far more of an emphasis on get an education, get a good job. Yep, that makes sense. If you and it probably will... has something to do with uh, immigration as well. Yes. Because there was that big wave of immigration after World War II. Yep. And so first-generation immigrants are much more likely, I would think, to say to their kids, mm. yeah, get a job, make money, yep. you know, integrate into society. So the, so we know we know now that kids do better at school when dad is a reader. Interesting. Okay, we know that not newspapers or magazines. We're saying when kids see dad reading a book, kids do better at school. Um, the parents that I know who artistically educated their kids. So they took them to the art gallery, they took them to the ballet, they took them to the proms if they were little people. Those kids have a far more uh, rich, uh, a rich library of personal experience to draw from. They may not be able to play an instrument, but they certainly can appreciate. Or kids who've learnt an instrument um, and their parents have encouraged them to practice. They may not still play the instrument, 
they may not have ever played particularly well, but they have learnt a lot about music and discipline through that. So I think it's both, it's a cultural on a national level, and I think it's about parenting in a period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about the things that we tend to say to our children based on our own experiences in life, which led me to this great psychological moment in my life <laughs> where I thought, I've got to do something creative that's outside my writing because my writing was all about my work. I'm content creating for friends. I write scenes for them for their reels. I write comedy, I've got a screenplay, I've got a 10-part ep, um, TV ep thing going on. What do I do for fun? And so I thought I'll take up painting. So here's the story. So I took myself off to Colour Me Mine in Studio City for their Friday Night Madness. As most LA stories begin, yes. Right. And, uh, and I was excited about this. I had zero skills, like which end of the paintbrush do you use? I was, I was just like that. And... Um, and I walked in and there, there were tables with easels on them and the setup was two, two, one. And because I was doing this also to meet new people, because mm -hmm. all I know are unemployed actors and I was trying to get into a different gene pool, yeah. or additional gene pool. It's not great, I'll get in with the artists. So I go along and I take a seat at one of the two tables and the, and the organiser comes up and she says, you're Ella, aren't you? And I said, yes. And she said, you're over there, pointing to the oh, solitary at the one, one oh. away from the groups. Everyone else, she said, is coming in pairs. And I thought, oh. it's a twin share world. It's Noah's Ark all over again. I'm not happy, Jan. Anyway, I sat there and I'm watching these women and they're all talking to each other, you know, in their little group of two. So it was pairs of women and not couples? Like, no, or, or it was maybe pairs they were couples. Of, no, you know, and I've left Barry with the kids. Okay. And uh, so I'm collecting dialogue in my head for my writing, which is not why I was there. <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, and we were given a picture of a sunflower. And we were told, this is how you sketch it and this is how you paint it. And I'm looking at their work and I'm looking, I'm sitting slightly behind them as well. The status was extraordinary. Oh, slightly behind them. And I'm looking and they are all unbelievably good. They are exact replicas of the, of the picture, the photograph of the sunflower. And they're all identical. And I look at mine and I've gone over the lines and the colours wrong and... And then I looked at it and I, and I thought, well, this is just me, so I'm going to go with it. So I said to the teacher, I called her over and I said, how do I write cursive? Which brush do I use? And I need some black paint. And she looked at me askance and she was not sure what was going on. And, um, and I wrote in the middle of this huge sunflower, not feeling it. Hmm. As... The sunflower is expected to grow up and be sunny and happy and tall and proud and strong. And what if it's just not feeling that? So I learned an important lesson. But that is, by the way, that is a great psychological moment. It was. It was. Thank you. Um, to realise, and I said this to some friends, I realised that when I make a mistake in my art, that's often the most uniquely different point about it. And they said, yes, Ella, you know, Einstein and the great philosophers have been saying this for years. You need to get out more. <laughs> I thought, damn, they're right. But it's true. So now I paint, I do watercolours, um, and I also have started doing decoupage. And I decoupaged some old audition scripts onto a deer's head, um, all about 
hunting and killing mm -hmm. and, and then mounting the emotion on the wall kind of thing. That's great. Yeah, it's fun. I think that's, I think that's a, a really cool idea, and I think it, it also ties in with something that I've been thinking about recently. Um, because at the last show, again, which has to do with my father dying and kind of going through the stages of grief, and I do a little thing where I have my own stages of grief, um, through Friends of a Friend, um, David Kessler came to the show, who was one of the people who he worked with, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who created that original you know, five stages of grief, yes. uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, and he has a new book out, because we're Facebook friends now. Oh my <laughs> God, um, he, ha he has a new book out uh, called, Find I think it's called Finding Meaning. And it's, the subhead is the sixth stage of grief. And it's talking about translating all of that stuff that you go through into something that has a positive meaning. And wow. I think your example of taking all those scripts and turning it into something that you can mount on your wall as like a trophy of your hunting for work yeah. is kind of inspired. And I think there's probably a market for those, by the way, at the Studio City Farmer's Market, particularly on a, uh, can't, can't remember whether it's Saturday or Sunday, but you know, you might want to look yes. into that. Maybe I should. Seriously, I mean, people, people would, I think, pe that, I think that's a great idea, but it is also a I really- I have taken my first commission, I must have. Oh, there you go, see? <laughs> And this, and I'm this, just waiting for more auditions yeah, to get well, more scripts. Oh, by the way, I changed the I changed the words so that I'm not putting another writer's work uh, okay. publicly. Good. You know, Got to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes. So the sixth stage of finding meaning. Yeah. That is. So th so through your show, sink or swim. You not only created an award-winning show. Did it then? become an additional part of your process. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's that's something that I have discovered that has taken a long time to discover, which is that I live through the creative process. And this was another thing that actually Romulus Linney, again, he did have some very good things to say, talked about the fact that if you are a writer, and I think this applies to any kind of artist, you live your life through your work. So if you are a painter who is not feeling it, that's what you, you paint that. And with this show, the process of going through memories and actually talking to my, my mother and my brother about memories um, and bringing that all together and translating into something that other people can identify with brought me to a completely different place in terms of dealing with the loss of my father still it comes it comes back um and that's something that i one of the things realization that probably great people have been saying for years but i had this realization um in the process of the show is that you know grief is like the ocean is the is the line from the show that it's not a it's not you know this is all connecting in interesting ways because it's not like an, an acting career that you expect to have a linear progression you do not have a linear progression in getting over the death of a parent nope. It comes back and it is with you for the rest of your life and you have to decide how you're going to deal with it and this was my one of my first steps in dealing with it and i think it was enormously helpful to translate something that was baffling and difficult and frustrating and all of these things into something that 
other people can identify with and that gets them talking. And I was thrilled that people came to the show and I like that people seem to enjoy it. Um, but what really got me was I talked to a friend who had been to the show and he said, my wife and I were up until two in the morning talking about our dads. Um, and I'd love to hear that and think, and, and to have them thinking about like, how can we, you know, what can we do to connect with our fathers or, you know, is, is this something, is this a relationship we just need to write off? Um, but to have people spark conversations based on seeing something that I've done is immensely gratifying and gives me, gives me the fuel to continue doing this yeah. despite the fact that it is something that is certainly not remunerative and can be personally challenging. You know, it's, it's interesting though. It's like, you know, you know this again from doing standup, um, which I've left by the way. Good for you. Um, but, you know, but stand-up is one of those things where the first time you do it, um, it's terrifying. Yeah. And the second time you do it, it's a little scary. And the third time you do it, this is just what we do. And so some of the... Your jokes are clearly better than mine. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, in terms of, not in terms of quality, but in terms of just approach to it, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things, like talking about yourself and being, you know, personally vulnerable um, seems daunting at first, but then it becomes part of the process. And that's, in a way, you're, you're giving yourself a funnel that you can go down and put these negative emotions where you know, as the writer and performer, you're protecting yourself to some degree by by being fully vulnerable in front of people, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and one of the big aspects of this show that was important to me was um, I spend the last, I don't know, 10 minutes uh, with my shirt off on stage in front of people. And that level of vulnerability, um, the first time I did it was terrifying. Um, and the second time I did it, was fine. And the third time I did it, I was using my physical self to make jokes. And I had, to, and that was incredible. But not jokes about yourself. It wasn't self-deprecating. Right. It was playing, well, the, I play a character in the, in the show where I'm playing a, um, a swimming instructor and his physicality is physical comedy. And it yes. was incredibly freeing to be playing that character on stage with no shirt on yeah. and doing this weird thing where say, saying to the audience look at my body but not really my body but this will make you laugh yes yes um and that was really an interesting experience that i've never had before and that certainly you couldn't i don't think in this in the structure of stand-up you wouldn't have the time to build that kind of rapport to get to that point no um so no and also oh this is a whole other conversation but <laughs> i mean one of the reasons i've left is that there isn't that opportunity um that to me i no longer wanted to go down that path publicly with an audience 
to discuss those parts of myself that I thought were interesting enough to warrant anyone else's interest. I just, I just lost, I just lost that part of myself that wanted to, to share that. Yeah, and I think what you also, what a lot of people also find out is that um, the way to express yourself is not necessarily only through jokes. And that was something that has been really great for me is being able to have serious moments and have uh, angry moments and have all these different, you know, being able to do all of those different things within the protected structure of something that I have written and I have, I have performed so that I can be confident that I am bringing everything that I can to telling this story in the purest possible way with the fewest possible filters. And I think with, with stand-up, you have the filter of everybody is in this room to laugh. And it's your, I think it's your job, if you're doing stand-up, to try to live up to that mm. because that's what people have come here for. Mostly they have paid. You try to deliver. The other thing that I found as I went along in stand-up and I don't know if you have found, have found this as well, but that the kind of structure of a joke where you have a, you know, you have a setup, you have a turn, you have a punchline, um, led me to be more negative than I am as a person. Yes. And that I wow. did not like. I had not, I had thought many things about it, I was stirred by Hannah Gadsby's Netflix special, Nanette, where she said, I, and I'm paraphrasing, I've spent my entire career putting myself down to create a space for my voice on stage, and I'm not going to do that to myself anymore. Um, but what you just said, I, for my last show, I did notice that you were either up on stage bagging out yourself or bagging out others, and I did not want to be that person anymore. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be funny. I'm still, I love my storytelling at the moth and stuff. Yeah. But I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, and that's one of the, one of the things that we're so lucky about about where we live is there are all these storytelling opportunities. Yeah. And you, there is a whole culture of storytellers and storytelling shows, and, and I've sort of dipped my toe into that a little bit. But there are... Let's go together. It's great fun. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it is fun. But I think the other thing that I have discovered that, that came out of doing stand-up is seven minutes is not enough. Um, ten minutes is and not enough. five minutes as a storyteller is not yeah. enough. And a half an hour is not enough. No. For me, the goal is... The goal now um, is something longer form, something that has time... For me to go on a, on a journey, which is a terrible hackneyed word, but it has its meaning, and for the audience to go on a journey as well. Yeah. And that requires longer form. And that, for me, requires this process of writing and rehearsing and presenting. Um, I don't have a, an armory of great five-minute stories or great you know, five minutes of stand-up or whatever. I don't, I don't have that anymore. Um, and don't want to do that. I feel like there's something different about 
taking people on a, a whole journey that you have imagined that's not based on, you know, the first joke is about my cat, so the last joke is also going to be about my cat. Um, although I will at some point, I'm sure, write a show about me and cats, um, and it will be called Catman, and the, the postcard will be me in a superhero thing with a C on the front, and that, that'll happen at some point. I can't um, wait to see <laughs> And, but, but the, you know, the, the idea of, of having you, dis you as the performer, writer, whatever, deciding the shape and size of the container is, is huge for me. And that mm. has been one of the things why, you know, the Hollywood Fringe Festival has been great is, you know, basically you have an hour. If you want to pay a little bit more, you can get 90 minutes, but you have this container of time and whatever you want to put in the container, you put in the container. And that is an enormous freedom to be able to have. Mm. And my next hope is to be able to take these things that I've done and have them have a life beyond, you know, four performances on Santa Monica Boulevard in, in June and July and, and see, you know, especially with this last one, because the first couple of shows that I wrote had to do with me growing up riding horses and, and there's an aura of privilege surrounding that, that I think to some people is kind of like, well, I, you know, I didn't, I, I got a pony for my 10th birthday. So that kind of limits to some degree, I think, the degree that people are going to um, identify with that particular disagree. story. I um, would disagree. I would disagree with that. I, well, good. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I think, I mean, no, I just disagree with that. I, I wouldn't, I just keep pushing that out there because um, if, if, if we, we, we automatically think that we're writing for a certain audience... And then we should be constantly surprised by the people who say it has touched them. Yes. And that happens. And I think, I guess the, the leap that happened was that the first two shows I did had to do with horses, had to do with some of that sense of privilege, whatever. Um, this show was about, you know, my dad dying. Everybody has a dad. People, well, as far as I know, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and you know, and certainly people in our demographic are fortunate now if they have both of their parents. So, yeah. a lot of people have gone through this. So this is a really universal experience. And I think the formula, if you can say something as simplistic as a formula, for a good storytelling show is taking taking a universal experience and presenting your very personal very detailed take on it mm. and that was what this show was and i hope that i hope to find a way to share it with more people and that was actually one of the things that circling back to what we talked about almost near the beginning mm. that was one of the things that people this time in this ongoing conversation in my life where people say what you're doing should be in a different form than what it is taking. A couple of people came up to me and said, God, I wish you could do this for a bigger audience. There you go. Um, which was lovely. Um, and how is that possible? I, I don't have a vision for that right now, but we are in Los Angeles. So if I manifest it. And have kale and <laughs> yoga, it'll work. Yeah. Chris Peeler, thank you for your time. 
Thank you so much. This was great. It's really good. You've been listening to Tate Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.